We have been looking at stories of the Bible all summer, taking a look at, at how we're supposed to live by these stories. And uh, we, we, we're going to do another story next week, but it's a little bit of a, more of a story of culture than it is a story of the Bible. And then in October, I uh, wanted to do something a little different, but keep on this theme of stories. So in October, I'm going to be talking about parables of Jesus. So we're going to look at some short stories that Jesus told. One of the things I think is valuable about trying to live out the stories of the Bible is, is taking the details seriously, right? If this is God's word, then these are God's words. And if these are God's words, then we should take them seriously. And if you think about these writers, uh, I, I think even John says that books and volumes could be talked about, about what Jesus did. They could talk forever about details, about the story. So they, they had to be selective about what stories they told, and they had to be selective about what details they added. And what you gotta, when you approach the Bible, you've got to approach it like that. Like These authors are trying to help you understand what they're talking about. They just are using old tools to do it that aren't the same as the tools that you have. They didn't have punctuation. They didn't have caps locks. They didn't have a lot of the tools you have. And so they used a lot of symbols and a lot of repetition. And, and, and they had to pick details. So a lot of times, the details that they add... Or sometimes the details that they leave out become important for how you interpret that story. And it's my belief that if you trust the story and follow it, you're going to follow and find yourself at the gospel. You're going to find yourself peering at Jesus in the midst of these texts because I think that's what God's word does. So that's what I've been trying to model, been trying to show you as we're going through these stories of the Bible. Now, today we're going to look at the wedding at Cana, or the turning water into wine. The challenge of this story is that there are a lot of details. Uh, for a very short passage, there's a lot of particular details that are added about the story. And so part of the challenge is, what is this story about? And actually, scholars have debated this story a lot about what is the most important part of this story or what is the point of this story. But I hope you're starting to realize as I talk about stories that stories don't necessarily have a point. Sometimes they have lots of points. Sometimes they have lots of things to think about. In, in particular, this story today is the first of the signs that Jesus does. John likes that word signs. He has seven signs in his gospel. And he numbers a bunch of them. He says, this is the first sign. This is the second sign. This is the third sign. And, and for John, sign doesn't just mean miracle. It doesn't just mean miraculous thing that happened. For John, a sign is, you, you got to think of it more like a road sign. It's a pointer. It says, hey, hey, pay attention to this. This is saying something about Jesus. Okay, it's not just a miracle. It's, a, it's actually a pointer to something about Jesus. The problem with this story is, what is the sign? What is it a sign of? And there are a lot of details in here. So, so the only way I know how to do this, I thought I'm gonna, as I prepped this sermon, I'll, I'll pick one. Or like I'll try to figure out which one I think is really the one. But the more and more I got into it, the more and more I think the only thing you can do with this story is jump in and sort of wiggle around and poke in to, you know, poke at these different metaphors. And, and maybe I think John has a lot of them that are intended. So let me read the story from John chapter 2. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding, 
with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus came to him and said to him, They have no wine. Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone water jars that were used for Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, Fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, Now draw out some and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn it, the water knew. The master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee, and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. After this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and his brothers and his disciples, and they stayed there a few days. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So we're looking at this wedding in Cana. The text starts out with this phrase denoting it's the third day. Well, what is it the third day? The third day of the wedding? Is it the third day since the last thing that happened? Is it the third day of the week? Well, actually in John, that theme of the third day normally points ahead to Jesus rising from the dead on the third day. And so in some ways, John is framing this story as the beginning of the ministry that will lead to the ultimate third day, the resurrection, the third day. So this wedding is happening in the city of Cana in Galilee. We're not exactly sure where ancient Cana was, but it's somewhere around there. There's a city today in Israel called Cana, and and somewhere around there was the old, old city. Some eight or nine miles from Capernaum, and about six miles from Nazareth, which means it was walking distance. Eight miles seems like a lot to us. The average person in the ancient world probably walked around 15 miles a day on an average day. It was a typical day. And so it's really not that big of a deal to walk over. And probably Jesus, working in, as a carpenter in Nazareth, had done work in Cana. Probably he had relatives in Cana. That's why he gets invited to the wedding. And Jesus was never one to miss a party. We often think about Jesus as this, you know, sort of hermit, secluded. He goes off in the wilderness. He, he's, he's kind of aloof. But actually, if you read the gospel, every time there's a party, Jesus seems to be there. And everywhere Jesus is, there is a party. And so Jesus takes his new disciples. Remember, this is John 2. He, he, he doesn't even have all of his disciples in the gospel of John. He, he, so he goes to this wedding Because of Mary's knowledge of the wine situation, we can guess that maybe they were family. Perhaps a sister or a cousin. Maybe maybe Mary was actually part of sort of the planning group for her sister who was the mother of the groom or something like that. We hear nothing of Joseph, reminded again that Joseph probably had died at this point. This might have meant that Jesus, the oldest son, had to take care of his mother, and that's probably why he never married. He had to take care of his mother. In the first century, weddings are a big deal. Okay, weddings are a big deal today, but in the first century, they were crazy. Okay, weddings lasted seven days, seven day weddings, and that included dancing, eating, visiting, drinking wine, 
And the bridegroom's family, which is, which is what we call the groom today. We just have shortened it. The groom, okay, his family was responsible for a lot of it, including the wine. Though people were coming to the wedding, were expected to maybe make a donation to help fund some of the food and the wine that they were taking part in. Now, now what you would normally do is you would serve the best wine first, okay? Because after four days of drinking, the assumption was you didn't care as much what you were drinking, okay? And so you'd do the best wine would be first, big part of the celebration, you'd do the kickoff, and then you would just sort of, in fact, you would water it down is what you would do, okay? The big difference between good wine and not good wine is they would water it down to thin it out, to stretch it out. Okay, and there was actually a, a person that was part of the wedding that their job was mainly to manage this situation. So at some point, the wine, the wine ran out in this wedding. To run out of the wine was a serious social faux pas. Okay, if, if you ran out of wine at your wedding, uh, everybody would know it. And you'd have people from all these different communities that would know it. And so it would be kind of the joke Right? It'd be, it'd be, hey, remember that? Remember when we ran out of wine at so and so? And part of the question is, why do they run out of wine? Is, it, is everybody just partying that hard? Or were there a bunch of people that showed up that didn't RSVP and so the count was off? Was there poor planning? Um, we don't quite know what happened. All we know is that there's a problem, and then we know that Mary knows. Again, maybe she's related to the, the parents, and so she's going to be part of the, of the committee that's planning this out. So she just goes to Jesus, and so she doesn't explain much. We only get parts of conversations, as is typical in the Bible, and she says, they have no wine. Jesus says to her, his mother, woman, th- what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. Now, let me be clear that this word woman is not... It, it, it's actually not as rude as it would come across. Okay, like if you called your mother woman, if I called my wife woman, it would be rude, right? Like, woman, get me a sandwich. That's what you think is coming next. But, but actually, this form of address, this word woman, it, is actually more like we might think of ma'am. It's, it's a term of, it's actually a term of endearment or respect. Uh, in fact, Jesus uses the same term on the cross when he's taking care of his mo- mother with John, and he says, woman behold your son he uses the same term in john when he deals with mary magdalene and with the woman at the well it's not adversarial although it's perhaps a little distant for your mom uh, but it's not as rude as this. it kind of comes across in english now the second part of this uh, maybe is he says you know w- what is it to me what is it do you want me to do what's the problem why is it my problem And then he says, my hour has not yet come. In the Gospel of John, the hour is the hour of his death on the cross. And I think what Jesus is partially saying at this point is, hey, look, it's not time for me to go to the cross yet. And uh, if I start this, if I do this sign, if I get this thing started, then there's no turning this train around. Like, once I say this, my hour is coming. Like, the countdown starts with this. Now, I don't know if you've watched the show The Chosen yet. Um, it's, a, it's a show that's, that's out right now. They, they've done two seasons of it, following the life of Jesus through the life of his disciples. It is fantastic. You can look it up online and watch it online. Uh, again, called The Chosen. Uh, but, but I highly, highly recommend it. And uh, in that, in, they have a great episode that's this, this story. 
And part of, uh, yeah, it would be great for a Sunday school class. If anybody's looking for stuff for the fall, the chosen would be fantastic. Okay. Um, what I would, in this, in, in this wedding scene, though, is fantastic because uh, they take a little bit of, of interpretive license, but they have this as sort of Mary's pushing Jesus out of the nest like a mother, like a mother bird kind of thing, where Jesus is like, my, my hour has not yet come. And, and Mary sort of looks at Jesus and says, like, if not now, when? Right? Like, that's not in the text. It's obviously creative license, but, but I think that moment they're trying to capture of the start of Jesus' ministry is kind of in this text. Like, okay, Jesus, n- now it's time. It, the, your hour has come in some ways. And if you look at Mary's response, she doesn't get mad because he calls her woman. He just, she doesn't get mad. What does she just simply say? She doesn't even say anything to him. And he hasn't said that he's going to do anything or what he's going to do. What Jesus, what Mary does is she turns to the servant and say, dude, you guys do whatever he does. Whatever he tells you to do, you do that. See, she doesn't know what he's going to do. But actually, Mary has a trust um, that, that, that he can do it. That he's going to do something. That he's going to have compassion and he's going to respond that's how, uh, but she doesn't know, and, and that's part of the question, is how do you actively, uh, how is Jesus going to respond to this? Well, the text says there are these six stone jars. I've actually given you pictures in the bulletin of a couple stone jars that they have found from about this period. So you can kind of get a sense, uh, that's at a museum in Jerusalem, you can kind of get a sense of what these jars may have looked like. They're big. They have, they're bigger than the ones in the picture, I think, because they hold, the text says, between 20 and 30 gallons. And what you would normally do is you would put water in those so that you could wash your hands ceremonially before you would go to, uh, to do anything, before you'd have to eat. You'd have to ceremonially wash your hands. They're made of stone because uh, stone, if it gets ceremonially dirty, in other words, you drop them, something spills in the water, whatever, you could actually clean the stone so that it's ceremonially clean again. If that happens to something like a clay pot, you can't clean it again. It's dirty forever. And so they would use stone a lot for these sort of ceremonial things. And so Jesus says, okay, uh, what do we have? We got these jars. Fill these jars with water. Now, can you imagine these servants being like, what is that going to do? Like what? What do we? We're gonna. We're gonna. And 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 imagine this. They don't have a hose. They don't have a sink. You aren't moving a stone jar with thirty gallons of water in it back down from the stream or from the well. So you know what they've got to do. For a while, they got to go get a bucket or, or a pot, and they got to bring it back and they pour a little in, and they got to pour a little in, and they're doing a couple gallons at a time. Do you know if you average it out? This text says twenty to thirty gallons. If, if you average it out to 25 gallons for six jars, that's 150 gallons of water, okay? That's a lot of, that's a lot of running back and forth from the well or from the stream, right? That, that's a lot of work for these servants who have no idea what's going on. Or you want me to fill water? Well, we're out of wine. I don't know how much you're going to, you know, once we're out of wine, you can't water down the wine anymore. It's gone. But the servants listen to him just as Mary tells them to and they fill the jars and they get overzealous. They don't just put the water in, they fill them all the way to the brim. 
Then Jesus tells them to draw out some and give it to the master of the feast. Now, the master of the feast was this person that was elected from the community that was in charge of the party, and they were really in charge of the drinking. Okay, they were in charge of the wine, making sure people didn't get too much wine and get too happy, making sure the wine was stretched out. So, that, so this was the person that was in charge of the wine. And apparently this person, they hadn't told yet that they were out of wine. Okay, and maybe it's this person that had done a bad job of managing the wine. But they draw out a cup and they give it to him, and lo and behold, the water is wine. Now, now when does the water become wine? Like, we don't get an abracadabra moment here. We don't get a, like a blessing. We don't get a prayer. All we get is a, uh, a pouring of the water, and then we get a hand it to the guy, and he drinks it, and it's wine. So is it while he drinks it, while they take it to him? Do, can you imagine if you're the servant has to bring the Lord of the, the master of the feast a cup of water, and when he starts to drink it, it's wine? Like, if that's how that went, we're, we're not entirely sure. Or the man takes a drink and calls it the best wine he's ever had. This water made into wine. Of course it was the best. This is the person, the person who made the wine is the person who made grapes. Okay, the person, this is the best wine ever. The the best vintage wine you could possibly have had. That Jesus makes this wine. And what an amazing symbol that he would make it out of these empty ritual jars. Right? That this, this work... These, these jars representing Israel's purity laws that were empty. Now Jesus is filling with what? With wine that will also be a symbol later in John and in the Gospels of his blood. So what do we do with this symbolism of Israel being empty, but Jesus filling them? And by the way, that's a lot of wine. Right? What did we just say? We just said it's about 150 gallons in the jars. Okay? 150 gallons of water, now wine. I did the math just as an estimate. It's about 19,200 fluid ounces of wine. A bottle of wine is roughly 25 fluid ounces. So are you ready for this? Jesus makes about 768 bottles of wine. Okay? We think of like, oh, he made a couple bottles of wine. Great. No, he made... Uh, estimated 768 bottles of wine. That's a lot of wine. That's a really great second half of the wedding feast. And the master of the feast, who, who doesn't know that Jesus has done this, praises who? Not Jesus, he doesn't know. Praises the family of the bridegroom for not giving the best wine first, but actually saving the best wine almost as a surprise for their dinner guests instead of the watered-down stuff you would normally have later. Like, like imagine the turn for this family. They were going to be the brunt of jokes at every wedding for the next 30 years because of what was going to happen. Now, there wasn't going to be another wedding where they went to, and somebody didn't say, hey, do you remember the wine at Cana? Oh, you couldn't be there. You should have been there. That was the best wine, and it was later in the... Like, like they went from being made fun of in the community to now being really blessed in the community. And it was furthermore, at the end of the wedding, whatever wine was left over was sold to the people who could take it home. And that money was then given to the couple as a blessing at the beginning of their marriage. Which means 768 bottles of wine, whatever's left over, 
of this great wine that everybody's enjoying, people are going to buy, they're going to pay a premium for this wine, and this is about the best wedding gift anybody's ever received. I mean, what a blessing for this family, this couple, as they're starting out their relationship. But funny enough, most of the wedding doesn't know that Jesus did it. Who knows? Mary, the servants, and the disciples. And what does it say about the disciples? It says they believed him. And and what, what actually... John has an interesting phrase for that that description of believed in. Okay, he doesn't just say believed in. John actually uses a strange Greek word and actually says that the disciples believed into Jesus. Believed into. Like almost like they bought into Jesus. Almost like they they jumped on board. Um, that believing into, I love that phrase, believing into. I didn't know that until I was studying this week. That's a great way to talk about belief. Belief isn't just believing in something, it's believing into it. Buying in, I'm going to live this, I'm going to follow this. So the disciples are believing into Jesus. A journey that would take them lots of places, including to another meal with wine and bread, and to a cross when his hour finally had come. And bank- banquets were, were a sing- seen as a sign of abundance, and abundance of wine were seen. These were seen as signs in the Old Testament of the coming Messiah, particularly in Amos, of which in Amos 9 it reads, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when the plowman shall overtake the reaper and the treader of grapes, him who sows the seed. The mountains shall drip, sweep with wine, and the hills shall flow from it. I will restore the fortunes of Israel. I will rebuild ruined cities and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and drink their wine, and they shall have, make gardens and eat their fruit. I will plant them on their land, and they shall never again be uprooted out of the land that I am given them. And so in the Bible, the, the, the theme of a banquet becomes a theme of the coming Messiah. So much so that then in Revelation, when it talks about the Messiah coming back, there's going to be a great banquet, and Jesus is going to host the feast of his beloved. And an appetizer of that feast we call communion. So what do we do with all this symbolism, right? This, this just, you're sort of swimming in all this. What is the sign that, Jesus, that, that, that John is trying to get across? Is it the hour and the third day? Is it the abundance of the wine? Is it the replacing of the the ritual jars for what Jesus is going to fill them with? I don't know. If I'm honest, I can't really pick an element. And I can show you in in church history, there's been a lot of debate about what the sign actually is. But maybe the flurry of signs is the point. Maybe what John's trying to do is just set the stage for saying, Jesus is going to do do really big. He's going to do really powerful things. And he, he's going to be the, the blessing. He's going he's gonna to pour out his blessing. And he's going to, uh, to, to abundantly love. And he's going he's gonna to abundantly give. And he's going to replace these old rituals with, with great wine. And, and maybe John's just trying to get us to swim in all these different images. Maybe it's also just about Jesus responding to an everyday crisis at a real wedding. A real earthly need with a heavenly response. Whatever the exact image John's trying to point us to, the question for you is, what do you do when the wine runs out? When you are in crisis? When you're running on empty? Or you're about to be embarrassed in front of the community? And the answer is to trust Jesus. To believe into Him.
that he is such a God of power and abundance that he wants to pour out and richly bless. He wants to fill. He came to do those things. His hour did come, and he rose on the third day so that he can bless us with a feasting in this life. And of course, a great feast in the, le- in the next. So may we praise God and may we trust Jesus in all that we do. Amen.